Well, I don't know if you've ever looked up hard substances in the Bible to see what some of the hardest substances on earth are, but on the top of any list, you're going to find a diamond. A diamond is one of the hardest substances that we have occurring naturally on earth. Now, we've made other things that are harder, like boron nitride and some other things that are actually even harder than diamonds. But diamonds have for long been known as the hardest substance that we know of. Uh, What's interesting is the very word for diamond actually comes from a Greek word that means impenetrable or hard. And and what's fascinating to me is that as you think about diamonds being unbreakable, uh, the Bible really is about something uh, that is also considered to be extremely hard. In fact, it's one of the main purposes and focuses of the Bible that represents our great need before God, and that is the hardness of our hearts. In fact, the Bible regularly teaches us and tells us that one of our great problems, one of the great problems of mankind is that we have hard hearts. And and what that means is, is that they are not soft to the word of God. So when God's word hits it, it bounces off. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we are back in Mark's gospel. We're right in the middle of the amazing true story of Jesus. Now, if you're just joining us, let me tell you a little bit about what's been going on up to this point. Jesus has been doing some incredible things. Uh, We've seen Jesus thus far uh, actually heal the sick. He has uh, even in one point raised the dead. He has cast out thousands of demons from one man. Uh, We've also seen Jesus go dog whisper on a storm. Uh, There is no one like Jesus with the kind of authority that he has over all things. And yet this morning what we find is, is that as we have been viewing Kind of like the audience, these disciples and their experiences with Jesus, uh, this week we find that despite all of those amazing eyewitness accounts that they had to the work of Christ, still yet uh, they are hard to what Jesus is teaching and about who Jesus is. Well, this morning we are actually going to find a transition in the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus is about to turn his back on his ministry to the Galilee uh, area, and he's going to start his movement towards the cross in Jerusalem. And so this is a, a very pivotal point in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see here as he begins to move towards Jerusalem is a really important fact that was, I think, important uh, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was speaking to his people and something that's important to us today. And that's this, that hard hearts need a miracle on the inside not the outside, to see Jesus. Hard hearts need a miracle on the inside, not the outside, to see Jesus. Uh, That's our main point that we're going to be exploding this morning and and looking at. So let me begin uh, this morning as we're considering our need as a people who have hard hearts left to ourselves. uh, Why don't we pray together as an expression, almost a confession of our neediness before God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you and your word, We confess that your word is true, and it tells us that left to ourselves, our hearts are hard, impenetrable to your word. And so, God, we know something to be true. We know that we actually need you yourself, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to help us. Father, our hearts are fragile and weak. Uh, Lord, though they might be considered to be one of the strongest substances on earth, at the same time, we are a fragile people and breakable and many of us broken. And so God, we need to hear afresh from your word this morning. We ask that you would help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and understanding as we look to understand your word. 
And it's in the great name of your son, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we open up, we're going to begin with our first point, which is this, that Jesus cures a man who's physically deaf. Jesus cures a man who's physically deaf. And you find that in verses 31 to 37. And we're going to look at those verses again. So look there with me in Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. Here's here's what happens. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphathah. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more that he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Now, we're right back in the non-Jewish area of the Decapolis. So Jesus is surrounded by Gentiles, when people brought a deaf man with a speech impediment to Jesus, begging Jesus to touch him. We don't know if this was simply a speech impediment in the, in the sense that he could not speak clearly or that he could not speak at all, but he has some kind of trouble with communication and with hearing, and they're probably connected. Now, here, if you struggle with germophobia, if you're the kind of person that washes your hands so much that you actually have created super bacteria on your hands. This story might be a little bit difficult for you. Uh, Take note that Jesus literally puts his fingers in this man's ears. Catch the sequence. And then we're told he spits on them, and then he touches the man's tongue. (laughs) What a picture. You couldn't make this stuff up. Next, he looks up to heaven showing that this healing that he's about to perform is actually divine. And that Jesus isn't stiff-necked, right? He, he's able to look up to heaven where he knows his help is coming from. And, and finally, it says that he sighed and said to this man, Ephathah, that is, be opened. And immediately he heard and he could speak. Now, maybe if you've been following the stories of Jesus, you're wondering why all the theatrics. I mean, sometimes he just gives a word and someone is healed, or he touches someone and they're healed. Well, uh, there's a lot of commentaries that have been written on this, and I don't really honestly know the answer. But, but here's my guess. My guess is you have a man who cannot hear. And Jesus is on the fly creating sign language so that he understands exactly what it is that he's doing for this man. So in a sense, it seems like it's almost Jesus condescending to help this man know exactly what it is that the plan is. Many uh, have seen uh, a number of things here, but I like to think that here uh, what we see is is that um, he had witnessed something miraculous. And I like to think that as this crowd would have witnessed this miraculous healing, that I, I would listen to whatever that person who did that thing had to say. I'd like to think of myself that way, usually because I'd like to think of myself being better than others. Are you like that? Like maybe we wouldn't confess to it, but in actuality, that's sort of what we do. That's our default setting. But check out what happens in verses 36 to 37. While you might think that you would do exactly what he said, 
Here's what it says happened immediately after this healing. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I mean, here we see, once again, on display, the messianic secret, right? Jesus does something and says, don't tell anybody who I am. Maybe you're thinking, well, I kind of understand their disobedience here. I mean, Jesus' command to be quiet really should just be chalked up, their disobedience, to just excitement. They're excited about Jesus. So, you know, if you're excited about something, like, we get leeway to just kind of do whatever we want, right? And that's exactly what we find happening here with these folks. They... They're doing whatever they want. And commentary, commentator R.T. France, he says something interesting. He says, you know, I wouldn't just talk this up to excitement. He says the words for Jesus charging them to be quiet actually give the picture of Jesus giving a protracted appeal for silence and an equally protracted disobedience. So here's the irony I, I see here in this story. This is fascinating. Jesus gave a deaf man ability, the ability to hear. And the crowds respond by not hearing Jesus. The, the crowd praises Jesus' ability to give hearing to the deaf while turning a deaf ear to the voice of Jesus. I mean, this physical healing, I believe, I believe it reveals their spiritual sickness and inability to hear the voice of Jesus. Hearing, they do not understand. And there's an enthusiasm for Jesus here that doesn't lead to, obedient, to obedience. Do you, do you see it? Uh, there's an there's a enthusiasm and, and yet disobedience, and they're, they're right together. It looks like they're excited about Jesus, and yet at the same time, they will not listen to Jesus. I think there's a lot that we could spend time on here thinking through practical applications. I mean, one, of course, I, I believe we need to think corporately about local churches. I think local churches need to be careful about this. Uh, as, I, as I look at, at other churches, as a pastor, as I'm constantly trying to think about how we can encourage all of us together to love Jesus more and to serve him and to be obedient, um, we need to think about what it is that we're doing together. And I, I've noticed that so many churches aim at providing an emotionally charged experience, getting people really excited about Jesus without ever addressing our need to repent of disobedience to God or their need to turn from their sin. See, it reminds me a lot of a quote that I heard from Joel Osteen back when I was in seminary over a decade ago. Uh, I remember watching an interview where, where he said that sin just was not on the menu, that his main job was not to let people know about sin and the wrath of God. The real, the real big issue that he needed to let them know about was how they could be happy and feel good about themselves. And that's exactly what we find Joel Osteen saying. And I think a lot of us would say, yeah, well, Joel Osteen's a little bit to, you know, outside the, the normal bubble. But I think subtly we see this taking place in all kinds of churches. Uh, in fact, my wife, uh, the other day she took our kids. Uh, they went and they visited a church. Um, they had a, a guest speaker coming in, and they actually treated it as part of a normal service. And, and they walked in, and they were a little bit, my family was a little bit shocked, including my kids. Uh, because when they got there, they had fog machines going, strobe lights, and dancers on the stage. Uh, now, that's not what really threw them. It was whenever they pulled out the hula hoops and the pyrotechnics that they got a little nervous. And amidst all of this, this hoopla, they were listening to hear whether or not they ever mentioned sin or the good news of the gospel. And they were strangely silent on that. They were very articulate when it came to asking for money. 
Now, what's interesting to me is, is that what we have here is, I believe, a, a very early picture of this kind of vision of the people of God, where we are so concerned about physical things that we do not pay attention to spiritual things. See, the music at this church, it was energetic with little mention of the need of repentance and then an ask for money, and they were done, but they never mentioned sin or what God requires. See, I just want you to know, brothers and sisters, I believe that's spiritual malpractice. We need to hear about what God has said is important, and he has said that it's important that we know that we are sinners before a righteous God. But the good news is that he has an answer. But if we don't ever get to the bad news, we'll never get to how good the good news is. I think that we can do this individually as well. Um, You know, I I don't know if you've ever experienced this uh, in your life. You probably have. You probably are like this in some ways and know people that are like this in some ways. Uh, But you probably have friends that follow something that I would call mullet Christianity. You know mullet like the haircut? That's a great haircut. Um, but, but basically, you know, it's got a, a pretty good definition of being all business up front and a party in the back, right? Well, isn't that kind of like what these Christians look like? I mean, they're like, yeah, like this is, we're serious about Jesus and singing. And, and then it comes to obedience and it's like, and we don't listen to anything that Jesus says. We do whatever we want. We party like mom and dad are gone. And this is exactly the kind of Christianity that these folks had. The problem is it's no kind of true Christianity according to Jesus. Uh, 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden to us. See, if our enthusiasm, if our enthusiasm and our excitement ignore sin and obedience, then we must be excited about something else, like being excited. We need to be excited about Jesus. And, and I believe that if we are truly excited and enthusiastic in a biblical kind of way, truly enthusiastic about Jesus, then it will always propel obedience. That's what it does. If we're excited about Christ, we're excited about listening to his voice. That is exactly, I believe, what Jesus would commend to these believers, or these folks, who did not listen to his voice. See, trying to warm our hearts to God without repenting of our sins, friends, it will only harden our hearts to the voice of Jesus. It will become harder and harder to joyfully sing to your Savior or to listen to His Word preached and to pray. Hard hearts are impenetrable to the Word of God. But there's a second thing that we see in our text, and that's that these disciples, they have hard hearts, is evidenced by their poor memories. Uh, Look that in verses uh, 8, 1 to 10 that was read just before I started preaching. Now, this is a story that, that we don't have time to, to read through yet again. We just read it. But, but we kind of read it before, in a way, in the fact that, you'll remember in Mark 6, we read about Jesus feeding 5,000. And this story is, is very much like a twin with many similarities, but also some differences as well. And so we're going we're gonna to think about some of those similarities and differences But I love the picture. This section follows up a Syrophoenician woman, as you'll remember, who asked for crumbs from Jesus. And here we see him providing the Gentiles with loaves. He's he's visiting a Gentile people here. He was visiting Jews in the other one. Here he's with Gentiles, and he is giving them much bread out of his compassionate heart. Now, we don't have time to cover all of this, but just think about this for a minute. This is striking. Jesus' compassion drives him to feed 4,000 Gentiles in Mark 8, verses 1 to 10. And and then, here we find that he feeds 4,000 Gentiles bread and fish from heaven, just like he did for the 5,000 Jewish men. Now, the disciples 
question to Jesus in verse 4, I think, is fascinating. Uh, look what he says. He, he asks in verse 4, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So Jesus is asking them to feed them, and they're like, How are we going to do something like that? And this question, I think, would sound entirely rational. It really would. Coming from anyone who had not seen Jesus heal the sick, stop storms, raise the dead, and oh, by the way, feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish just two chapters ago. If they had not experienced those things, the question makes total sense. The problem is they did experience all of those things and more, which I think begs the question. Have they forgotten about who Jesus is? See, Jesus seems to try to jog their memory, and he does this by asking them the exact same question in the exact same way that he asked them back in Mark chapter 6. You'll notice in Mark 6.38, he basically quotes it again here and asks them in response, well, how many loaves do you have? And I think it was probably somewhat of him trying to control himself not to add in this time, right? We've done this. And there are a few times, a few differences here with Mark 6 and the way that this unfolds. You know, here, as I said before, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. There, he fed 5,000 Jews. Uh, Here, you'll remember that he begins with seven loaves and ends with seven baskets. There, he began with five loaves and ended up with 12 baskets. And so we see a number of differences. There Jesus taught, here he doesn't. But I think it's the similarities that really tell the tale of the disciples' inability to remember who Jesus is. See, they've had front row seats to every miracle and they are still startled by Jesus' repeat performance. Like, I've never seen this before. I think you have. And here the disciples, I believe, remind uh, me of a lot of us. Uh, also kind of reminds me a little bit of a game that I love to play with babies. Any here like, like love playing with babies? Like, are they not fun? Okay, a few of you, the rest of you, we need to talk. Like, that's weird. But when we look at, at babies, it, it's fascinating because uh, I love this game called Peekaboo. Y'all ever played Peekaboo with a baby? I love the game. It, it's fascinating. What you do is, if you haven't played, um, you can stick this in your repertoire. You basically stick your hands in front of your face and you hide your eyes from their eyes, right? And then all of a sudden, you suddenly remove it, and you say, peekaboo, and hopefully you don't scare the kid. But usually, they like laugh, right? They get really excited, and they laugh about what just happened. And then, here's the fun thing. You do it all over again, right? And you like, you do it for hours, and it's like they're freshly shocked and amazed every time, and you're like, you're still not getting this? (laughs) It's still me, (laughs) right? And I feel like the disciples are a lot like that. Like, they keep on seeing Jesus do the same stuff over and over again. And they're like, oh man, like we don't got bread. Jesus, what are we going to do? I wish we knew somebody who knew how to, I don't know, miraculously make bread. I think it's because there is a human condition. We all struggle with a hardness of heart where we are prone and quick. We are quick to forget all kinds of things, including the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus and who he is. And so it's, it's that we need constant reminders of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. We need those constant reminders because we are 
prone to be forgetful. All of us. It's not an IQ thing. We are just all by nature prone to forgetfulness. See, God's people have always struggled with remembering who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. I love the hopefulness, and you might not get this, but I love the hopefulness of what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.1. He, he tells them this, and I, and I love it. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And then this little phrase that you might have missed, but means a lot to me, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe to you. Now why do you think that he says it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it's safe for you? Why do you think that is? I think it's because he understands that he has already told them these things. And yet patiently, Paul comes back and reminds them yet again of the grace of God and what it looks like to be obedient to the grace of God. Doesn't that look so much like Jesus with the disciples? So patient. Okay, we're doing this again. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to teach you again. I'm going to be patient. See, Paul's happy to be to patiently remind these Christians yet again who Christ is and what that means for everyday life. All of life is about Jesus. If you make your life about Jesus, it's hard to forget about him. And that's a community project. So you will not remember who Jesus is by yourself. That is why he is, God has given you a local church. It is because you need a community of people who are constantly pointing you towards Christ so that you never forget. And not only that, God is calling you to constantly point others towards Christ so that they don't forget. When we gather week after week, morning after morning, as we gather Sunday after Sunday, we are singing songs where we are verbally reminding one another with our voices who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, who we are in Christ. And we're reminding ourselves of that so that we can go out and live a life that honors Jesus and then come back and be reminded of who he is yet again. That is exactly what God has called us to. So let me just encourage you this morning to treat attending church faithfully as necessary for your memory of Christ and who you are. You need to come to church as though you understand that you're constantly in danger of forgetting who Jesus is. See, we need that because all kinds of things can cause us to forget Jesus. In fact, some of you won't even get out the doors of this church before you forget Jesus, right? I mean, we know this. Like all of a sudden, your child has an accident and you're consumed with what you're going to do to clean up your child because you just found out you're on the last diaper, right? And and you are all of a sudden like absolutely not thinking about Jesus because life has hit. And that's fine because that happens. But when you get into a role of forgetting Jesus and not thinking about Jesus and not being reminded of Jesus, then all of a sudden you get way, way, way down the road of not thinking about Jesus, meditating on him, knowing who he is and who you are. And it is so easy. We are naturally prone in our, in our hard hearts. We are naturally prone to becoming self-absorbed, struggling with what Paul Tripp calls meism, right? We are about me, myself, and I. And we are naturally geared that way in the flesh. And so all kinds of things can distract us and our hearts from Christ so that we need to be drawn back to remembering who he is. You know, we become too self-absorbed in our hobbies, our jobs, our relationships, social media, and even suffering. When my world comes, becomes about me, and I forget Jesus and his desires, then I am in a bad place. So brothers and sisters, let us constantly be about the business of reminding ourselves of who Christ is, lest we forget. But there's a third thing that we see here, and that's this. The Pharisees were blind to what they needed most. The Pharisees were blind to what they needed most in verses 11 to 13. Look there with me and, and mark chapter 
8, verses 11 to 13, where Jesus turns his attention to the Pharisees. They show up again, and that's always fun, isn't it? Well, here's what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, being Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got in the boat, and he went to the other side. Now, you'll remember that Jesus sighed before, back in chapter 7, where we began. But here, he sighs deeply. And I don't want us to miss the weight of that. See, the Pharisees are the legalistic human equivalent of a wet blanket who are no fun at parties, right? We've seen that. Anytime Jesus does something amazing and people are excited about Jesus, the Pharisees show up to ruin it, right? They, they tell everybody about the fact that they think they shouldn't believe and they cause problems. And they are constantly asking Jesus for a sign. I think the Pharisees here represent really Jews at this time. We know from Paul, uh, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, to 24, about their desire for the signs, the, the preoccupation with looking for signs. He says there in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs. And Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of, uh, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, it, it makes sense, to be fair, why Jews would have been seeking signs. You'll remember when great men of the Old Testament showed up, they usually came along with miraculous signs. So Moses came, and you remember that he performed a number of miracles that showed that he truly was sent of God. Uh, You also remember Elijah, the man who uh, raised a child from the dead and then prayed down fire from heaven. So great men of God have often come with signs. So maybe you're wondering, though, as you hear this, why are they asking Jesus for a sign? I mean, what kind of sign was it that they needed? Did they really need him to, like I don't know, raise somebody from the dead or something? Wait a minute. Didn't he just do that? And, and, and so as we think about this, we know that Jesus performed a number of miracles, including raising somebody from the dead, Jairus' daughter. Uh, he, he, he raised her from the dead after she had been dead. Now, here's what's interesting. Some say here that the Pharisees uh, are actually asking for an apocalyptic sign, that we're looking for a specific kind of sign, maybe a blood moon or something like that, or an earthquake. Others argue that the Pharisees conveniently missed every miracle that Jesus ever performed and didn't believe he actually performed any miracles or signs. Uh, of course, I, I think that's hard to believe because we know just back in Mark three twenty-two that we are told that they did see that Jesus cast out demons. The argument wasn't whether or not they saw it and it happened. The question was by which power did he do this? So I believe that they've seen that Jesus has done signs. The question for them is, where did they come from? So here, Jesus could have given them a sign in response to their question, or even an apocalyptic sign. But here, Jesus, catch this, he ends his ministry in Galilee with a deep sigh of disappointment over their unresponsive, hard hearts towards his ministry. And it looks like the Pharisees have won 
all of Galilee, this generation that he speaks of, to their position. So this is where Jesus is going to make a big transition and start moving towards Jerusalem, uh, towards his death. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why didn't Jesus give them a sign? He could have just given them a sign. Well, I think it's because he knew the hardness of their hearts. And he knew that they actually needed a greater sign. In fact, if you read the same story in Mark chapter 12 and Luke 11, uh, there uh, they add uh, one more statement. And he said, we're not going to give you a sign except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights before he was raised up. And in the same way, he says, uh, the son who has come will be in the earth for three days and three nights before he is raised up. And that's the sign that you're going to get. Of course, we know that that something greater than Jonah was actually a someone. It was Jesus himself. Jesus who went to the cross for our sins and died and was raised from the dead to prove that everything that he said was true. So here's the deal. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking like these Pharisees, like if I were the Pharisees and I saw what they saw, I would believe those Pharisees, they're just slow. Their hearts are way harder than my heart. I just want to say this morning, I think that what the New Testament would say to you is that actually your heart is harder than theirs because you have greater material than they had to work with. We have the risen Lord. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has died and ascended to the throne in heaven before countless eyewitness testimonies. And if we reject that testimony, then we have to have the hardest hearts ever. See, I don't think that we a lot of times realize just how hard our hearts have to be not to believe the evidence that we've been given about Jesus who literally came in the flesh and died and was raised again from the dead. Like we, we just ignore the facts, we ignore the testimonies, and we think it's okay because people tell us it's okay. Guess what? God, a voice from heaven, says it's not okay. Jesus did indeed, raise, he was raised from the dead. And brother, sister, if you have or you who have not ever put your faith in Christ, what you need to know today is, is that Jesus did that for you. He did it for you. So the invitation that comes from Christ today, it's still available to you. Put your faith in Christ, and He will do something radical for your heart. He will exchange that hard heart for something better, something we're going to talk about in just a minute. But don't leave here today without putting your faith in Christ. There's a last thing that we see here. Uh, That's our fourth point, and that's this. The disciples' hearts are hard. The disciples' hearts are hard in verses 14 to 21. You can't miss the tragic irony of this little boat that Jesus and his disciples are in. Here in this little boat, we have 12 disciples with Christ huddled around a loaf of bread. And Jesus has left his ministry to Galilee And the hope of humanity, really, the hope of all of humanity is in this little boat. They left the folks who had hard hearts, and now in this little boat, and Jesus is like, okay, here we go. We're going to do this thing. It's almost like a new ark where Jesus is beginning a new humanity. He's he's telling them about who he is. And in the midst of this little boat, as you are hoping that things are going to be different, look how this story unfolds in verses 14 to 15. Here's what it says. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 8, he says this. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Still talking about bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Just note, we don't have time to dwell here, but he actually lumps them together. Herod and the Pharisees. 
See, legalism and worldliness produce the same kinds of deadly fruit. But the meaning of the leaven here, I, I think, is unclear. You know, it usually represents evil. Sometimes the rapid growth of the kingdom, at least one place. But here it's likely that really Jesus is just using this loaf of bread and leaven as kind of a prop to serve his greater point. He wants to teach them something spiritually, and he's using this physical bread to get them there. But it's really funny what happens, I mean, in a tragic way, what happens in verse 16. It tells us how effective his technique was in turning their attention from the bread to spiritual things. Here's what it says. As soon as he says it, it says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) Talk about adventures and missing the point. Really? We're back to that. Sound familiar? I mean, Jesus tries to drag their attention towards spiritual things, and they immediately start grumbling over the bread. Remind you of anything? But catch how Jesus responds in verses 17 to 21. There it says, in verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? I really think all aspects describing their hard hearts. In verse 19 he says, Okay, you must have forgotten this. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. Okay, so you do remember. And then verse 20, and then seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Like still you don't get it. Now here's where Jesus brings it all together, showing how blindness, deafness, short-term memory loss, and all of these other things relate to his feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 with bread. They are all symptoms of hard hearts. See, as they are huddled around this boat, around a single loaf of bread, he shows them that your, your hearts are just as hard as the people that we just left. In fact, He says, you've seen me feed 5,000 with five loaves and 4,000 with seven loaves, and you still don't get it. I could flood this boat with bread right now. I could bring fish and bread from heaven, and I could sink this ship under your feet. How do we know that? Well, he kind of did that with Peter, right? Luke 5, he looks out. Peter's out fishing. They've been fishing all day, bringing nothing in. He says, tell you what, throw the nets on the other side. And we're told there in the text that they almost sunk two boats trying to bring all the fish in. And here Jesus is saying, do you, do you still not get who I am and what it means that you're with me? And the disciples, they still grumble over a loaf of bread not being enough. While Jesus is sitting there saying something like, I'm like right here, right? See, Jesus is stunned by their hard hearts. And they are still, amidst all of this, two clicks away from the deeper spiritual meaning of the bread. And Jesus has to save that lesson for another day. See, they've forgotten who Jesus is and what he has done. And their attention on physical things has distracted them from spiritual things. If the disciples' hearts are hard, see, 
we have problems. All these ministry opportunities in Galilee, and we have nothing but hard-hearted people, and now he's in this boat with people who've had a front row audience to everything that Jesus has done, and their hearts are hard too. Like if there's any hope in that boat, it's got to be Jesus, it can't be them. And don't miss this. Every human heart is a hard heart unless God does a mighty work on it. And we need the miracle of a new heart. That's the miracle that we need. It's not seeing a miracle out there. It's actually a miracle in here. In fact, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 speaks of this when he sees a new covenant that is to come where we are promised that people of the new covenant will actually be given new hearts. And here's what he says. And a new spirit I will put within you. God's going to put a new spirit within this new covenant people. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see it? God is going to do this new thing, giving us a new, giving his spirit to us so that we can obey him and want him in the way that we ought to. And please hear me, come in close. Every person needs that heart and every person receives it when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's what we need. Now, a soft heart is a gift of God that has eternal life in it. That's what a soft heart is. We don't want a hard heart, we want a soft heart. What does it look like? Four things. It is a gift of God that has eternal life in it. It's a heart that yields to the word of God. It's a heart that takes comfort in the promises of God. And it's a heart that bears spiritual fruit. That's what a soft heart looks like. Is that your heart? Let me end with three ways that Jonathan Edwards said that we can soften rocky hearts, changing them to truly soften hearts. Jonathan Edwards gives three ways that we can do this. I want to leave you with these. First, he says, "'Tis needful," because that's how they used to talk, "'tis needful that you should be sensible of the hardness of your heart." "'Tis needful that you should be sensible of the hardness of your heart." In other words, you must sense that your heart is as hard as a rock before it can be softened by God. If you don't think that your heart is hard, uh, that might be evidence of just how hard your heart is. See, first step in this whole process of bringing a hard heart to a soft heart is admitting that you have a problem. And so this morning, if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, my heart is not hard, or my heart, my heart is not as hard as that other person, then, then you really haven't gotten to the first step of where you're really ready for God to soften you. We need to know how hard our hearts are. How do we know they're hard? Because the Bible tells me so. And so if the Bible says so, then we need to believe that God's word is true. We need to admit that we have a problem. Now the last two things come from Jeremiah 23, 29 for for Edwards. And he says that the last two things, we need to understand God's word is both like a hammer and a fire. And I love those images. We need to understand God's word is like a hammer and a fire. Hard hearts need both the hammer and the fire. See, he says, second, it is needful that the rock be broken with the hammer of the law. It is needful that the rock be broken with the hammer of the law. God uses still his law to reveal the hardness of our hearts and the reality that we deserve God's wrath. Uh, The law shows us that. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but 
if you're in your devotional life reading the Ten Commandments and you're looking to give yourself like brownie points or like, you know, some kind of like trophies for how good you're doing at the Ten Commandments, that's not really why the Ten Commandments were given to us. The Ten Commandments reveal our deep need for God. They reveal our deep need for God to help us when we can't help ourselves. And that's the point of the law. So God uses that law like a hammer on our hearts. And he says the hard heart oftentimes long resists those blows. You just imagine God coming in with blow after blow. And our hearts is impenetrable to God trying to work on our hearts. But when God uses the hammer, the rock, hard as it is, catch what he says, can't always resist it. Do you love that? It can't always resist it. In other words, the heart is very good at resisting the work of God. And at last, we are promised that it will break. So you need to have your heart thus broken before God. Has your, has your heart been broken in that way? You know, maybe this morning, one of the problems that you've come in here with that you did not recognize that you had, uh, you came because you needed to get things fixed, but in reality, the thing that you need most is to get things broke. You came in because you thought that your life is a wreck and you think what you want God to do is just put things back together again when in reality everything's broken but your heart has never been broken before God. And this morning the very thing that God would have for you in His deep mercy because He loves you enough is to break your heart so that you are ready to see Him. See, we need to long for the hammer to rescue us from our hard hearts. If we really, step one, understand that we have a problem. So you need to have your heart thus broken. We need for the hammer to rescue us. We so often hide our hearts so well. We are masters of disguise, hiding our hearts from God. Behind excuses, right? It wasn't me, it was them. Like, God, it was the circumstances that you put me in. Like, all kinds of things hide our hard hearts from God. Saying, God, I don't need you in the way that they need you. I'm a pretty good person. It's not me. It's this, that, or them. We hide behind our achievements. But God, I mean, look at all the good that I'm doing. I'm generous. I'm successful. I don't really need you to break my heart. I'm good. And yet in the midst of that, what we actually need more than anything is to be rescued from our goodness and from our excuses. We need Jesus to crush our excuses and our accomplishments that we use to shield ourselves to give us something so much better. So our hearts are hard to God and fragile towards the sufferings of this world at the same time. It should be the other way around. It shouldn't be that our hearts are hard to God and fragile to the sufferings of the world, uh, the, the sufferings that are brought about us by the world. It should be the other way around. We should, in reality, have hearts that are fragile towards God. Where His word is impenetrable. It hits us and it sticks and it goes deep. That's what, what it should be like. And, and, and when sufferings come upon us, we ought to meet them with the confidence that God is who he says he is so that we're not so fragile in the world. See, if we are fragile before God, we are stronger before the sufferings of this life. And we need to be broken rightly if we're going to have the true strength that it takes to endure this life and all the sufferings that come upon us. But there's a last thing. Not only must we be broken, and here's the beautiful news. This is my favorite part. We need the fire. You want the fire, trust me. Here's the fire. Your heart must be melted with the love of the gospel. That's the fire. 
the gospel fire, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and who you are in Christ. You need that fire. See, the hammer is God's wrath, but the fire is his love, which is indeed what he says, the main thing that gives softness to the heart. Here's the deal. Please hear me. You want a soft heart? God's got to break you. If you haven't experienced the hammer, you're not ready for the fire. Maybe this morning you want to jump straight to the fire, but you don't want the hammer. You're not ready for the fire. You need the hammer. You need God to break your heart. You need to understand your sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. You need to see the fact that you are broken, that you are a hot mess, and that only God can fix what's happened in you. But once you've gotten to that point, you're ready to see love that you've never seen before because God comes in and he lavishes every bit of the ocean of his love into your soul and your heart in the same love that he has given to his son who he has loved eternally. It is an amazing love. There's no love like it. There's no grace like it. Once he breaks us with his hammer, he pours the love of his fire and fury on us. There is none like the love of God. See, the hammer never saves us, but it prepares us to be melted by the love of God. Some of us are so hard-hearted this morning because we've never been broken over our sin and we've never been able to sense the true warmth of the love of the gospel. Like we've never really had our hearts rightly prepared to receive the good news. And maybe some of you have received it, but you, you haven't quite yet seen truly how glorious it is and all of us need to see more of it. And it's the flame of God's love in Christ's heat that melts hard hearts and truly turns it into a soft and tender heart to be to be God's calls and commands and counsels, all of those are as wax to the seal. Like that's what God does in our souls. So this morning, let me just encourage you. Maybe you feel like you're going through a difficult experience and, and you feel like you're broken. Let me just ask you, is it, is it God's word that's breaking you about what he has said about you and what your needs are? Or are you just broken over your circumstances? There's a better breaking that needs to happen, a spiritual one. I'm not making light of the brokenness that enters into your life from outside, but I'm telling you there's a sweet breaking that needs to happen between you and God so that you're ready for those outside breakings that come in. Maybe that's you this morning, or maybe this morning you just need to be reminded of the deep love of Jesus for you, that the brokenness that you've experienced is all preparing the way for the love of Christ so that you know that you have a God who loves you forever. I hope that you've seen that this morning. Let's pray together.